0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of diabetic foot ulcers from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Diabetic foot ulcers are ulcerations in the diabetic foot due to lack of protective sensation. As far as the epidemiology, approximately 12% of diabetics have foot ulcers, and it's the most common medical complication causing diabetics to get medical treatment. Foot ulcers are responsible for approximately 85% of lower extremity amputations. As far as risk factors, let's talk about factors associated with decreased healing potential and factors associated with increased healing potential. Factors associated with decreased healing potential include uncontrolled hyperglycemia that is defined as a hemoglobin A1c of greater than 8, inability to offload the affected area, poor circulation, infection, and or poor nutrition. Factors associated with increased healing potential include serum albumin greater than 3 grams per deciliter and a total lymphocyte count of greater than 1,500. The pathophysiology of diabetic foot ulcers can be broken down into neuropathy and angiopathy. As far as neuropathy, this has the largest effect on diabetic foot pathology. Sensory dysfunction leads to lack of protective sensation and is the primary risk factor for ulcer development. Autonomic dysfunction leads to drying of the skin due to lack of normal glandular function. The net effect is increased mechanical and axial stress on the skin that is more prone to injury due to drying. As far as angiopathy, this has a lesser effect than neuropathy. However, greater than 60% of diabetic ulcers have decreased blood flow due to peripheral vascular disease. Associated conditions with diabetic foot ulcers include infection slash osteomyelitis. There are high rates of associated osteomyelitis if the bone is able to be probed or is exposed at the base of the ulcer. Keep in mind that 67% of ulcers that probe to bone have osteomyelitis. As far as organisms, infection osteomyelitis is usually polymicrobial. As far as gram-positive organisms, the most common pathogens are aerobic gram-positive cocci, like Staph aureus. As far as gram-negative organisms, there's increased gram-negative organisms found in chronic wounds and wounds recently treated with antibiotics. As far as anaerobes, keep in mind that obligate anaerobic pathogens are involved with ischemia or gangrene. Remember that deep cultures and bacterial biopsies help guide management. With respect to prognosis, diabetic foot ulceration is considered the most likely predictor of eventual lower extremity amputation in patients with diabetes mellitus. Now let's go over the classification of diabetic foot ulcers. The ones to know include the Wagner classification and the Brodsky depth ischemia classification. The Wagner classification is broken down into six grades, grade zero, grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, and grade five. Grade zero is described as the skin being intact, but bony deformities lead to the foot being at risk. The treatment is shoe modifications with serial exams. Grade one is a superficial ulcer and the treatment is office debridement and contact casting. Grade two is deeper with full thickness extension and the treatment is operative formal debridement and contact casting. Grade three is a deep abscess formation or osteomyelitis and treatment is also operative formal debridement and contact casting. Grade four is partial gangrene of the forefoot and treatment is local versus larger amputation. Grade 5 is extensive gangrene, and the treatment is amputation. The Brodsky depth ischemia classification is broken down into four classes for depth and four classes for ischemia. With respect to depth, class 0 is defined as an at-risk foot with no ulceration. The treatment involves patient education, accommodative footwear, and regular clinical examination. Class 1 is a superficial ulceration that is not infected, and the treatment is offloading with a total contact cast, walking brace, or special footwear. Class 2 is a deep ulceration exposing the tendons or the joints. Treatment involves surgical debridement, wound care, offloading, and culture-specific antibiotics. Class 3 is defined as extensive ulceration or abscess, and the treatment is debridement or partial amputation offloading, and culture-specific antibiotics. With respect to ischemia, the Brodsky classification is divided into four classes, A, B, C, and D. A is defined as not ischemic, B is defined as ischemia without gangrene, and the treatment is non-invasive vascular testing and vascular reconstruction with angioplasty slash bypass. Class C is partial forefoot gangrene, and the treatment is vascular reconstruction and partial foot amputation, and class D is complete gangrene, and the treatment is complete vascular valuation and major extremity amputation. As far as the presentation of diabetic foot ulcers, patients typically do not have pain. On physical exam, you should assess the depth of the ulcer, presence of infection, assess Achilles tendon tightness, and evaluate the circulation. With respect to depth of the ulcer, be sure to probe for bone. As far as presence of infection, look for cellulitis, pus, and also check for gangrene. As far as assessment of Achilles tendon tightness, you should perform the silver skull test. That is, improved ankle dorsiflexion with the knee flexed equals gastrocnemius tightness, while equivalent ankle dorsiflexion with knee flexion and extension equals Achilles tightness. As far as circulation evaluation, make sure to assess the dorsalis pedis and posterior tibialis pulses. Some important studies to mention include transcutaneous oxygen pressures as well as ABIs and ischemic index. Transcutaneous oxygen pressures are considered the gold standard to assess wound healing potential. Greater than 30 millimeters of mercury or 40 millimeters of mercury, depending on the review source cited, is a good sign of healing potential. With respect to ABIs and ischemic index, calcification in the arteries can result in inaccurate Doppler flow readings. Keep in mind that calcifications falsely elevate the ABIs due to decreased compliance of the calcified vessels. An index of greater than 0.45 and a toe pressure of greater than 45 millimeters of mercury are needed to heal an amputation and greater than 60 millimeters of mercury to heal an ulcer. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and oblique of the foot and ankle. An MRI is best for differentiating abscess from soft tissue swelling, However, it's difficult to differentiate infection from Charcot arthropathy on MRI. As far as bone scan, obtain these studies with technetium-99, gallium-67, or indium-111. These are useful to differentiate between soft tissue infection, osteomyelitis, and Charcot arthropathy. As far as treatment of diabetic ulcers, general factors that are important in deciding a treatment plan include angiopathic versus neuropathic, Deep versus superficial, plus or minus osteomyelitis, and the antibiotics are based on bone biopsy culture sensitivities, and plus or minus pyarthrosis, or infection of the joint. Non operative management includes shoe modification, wound care, and total contact casting. Shoe modification is indicated for prevention when signs of potential ulcers are present. Specific examples include deep or wide shoes, custom insoles, rocker bottom soles, etc. Of the available shoe-only modifications, rocker sole shoes are the best to reduce the plantar pressure on the forefoot. Keep in mind that Medicare will cover modifications and custom shoes slash insoles yearly. As far as wound care, this is the first line of treatment. The goals of wound care and dressings are to provide a moist environment, absorb exudate, act as a barrier, and offload the pressure at the ulcer. Total contact casting is considered the gold standard for mechanical relief plantar ulcerations. Absolute contraindications include infection, and relative contraindications include marginal artery supply to the affected area, patients unable to comply with cast care, and patients unable to tolerate a cast, which is otherwise known as cast claustrophobia. As far as outcomes, if the ulcer recurs, it is typically 3-4 to weeks after cast removal. Operative options for diabetic foot ulcers include surgical debridement, antibiotics, contact casting, plus or minus gastrocnemius recession, slash tendo Achilles lengthening. Other options include an ostectomy, plus or minus tendo Achilles lengthening, partial calconectomy, plus or minus tendo Achilles lengthening, syme amputation, and a keller resection arthroplasty. Surgical debridement, antibiotics, contact casting, plus or minus gastroc recession slash Achilles lengthening is indicated for grade three or greater ulcers and these patients should undergo IND with antibiotic treatment before casting. As far as outcomes, there are high rates of associated osteomyelitis if the bone is able to be probed or is exposed at the base of the ulcer. Ostectomy plus or minus tendoachilles lengthening is indicated if bony prominences cause internal pressure. As far as the technique, a tendo-achilles lengthening is indicated if there is a tight Achilles. Several studies have shown tendo-achilles lengthening to be effective to help heal and prevent recurrence of plantar forefoot ulcers. A partial calconectomy, plus or minus tendo-achilles lengthening is indicated for large heel ulcers with associated calcaneal osteomyelitis. As far as outcomes, this option preserves limb length and decreases morbidity compared to higher-level amputations. A syme amputation is indicated when there's is four foot gangrene and a palpable posterior tibial artery pulse. A keller resection arthroplasty is indicated for IP joint plantar neuropathic ulcers with a hypomobile slash stiff MTP joint that has failed total contact casting. Now let's talk about total contact casting in a bit more detail. This is often necessary for up to four months. The total contact cast is then followed by a Charcot restraint walker, then a custom shoe. And as far as a pneumatic walking brace, this is an alternative to the total contact cast. However, it's the same principle. It allows better wound surveillance. Keep in mind that significant deformity and or extremely large girth often requires custom pneumatic walkers. However, remember that patient compliance with offloading can be an issue because the pneumatic walker is removable. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 45-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes with a BMI of 38 and a hemoglobin A1C of 7.4 has a grade 2 ulcer under the first metatarsal head. Previous treatment with a custom orthosis and total contact casting has provided only temporary healing. Her ankle brachial index is 0.95, she has no foot deformity, and there is no evidence of infection. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are 1. Custom-molded plastizote orthotics, 2. Gastroxoleus recession and peroneus longus to brevis tendon transfer, 3. Resection of the first metatarsal head, 4. First-ray amputation, and 5. Transmetatarsal amputation. The correct answer to this question is two, gastroxoleus recession and peroneus longus to brevis tendon transfer. So ulceration in neuropathy is a consequence of increased pressure. When it occurs in the forefoot, it is frequently associated with a tight heel cord. In addition, lesions under the first metatarsal often have an associated overpull of the peroneus longus, plantar flexing the first metatarsal. Before bony resections are contemplated, a fractional lengthening of the heel cord or a gastroxoleus recession, as well as a peroneal longus to brevis tendon transfer will decrease the forefoot pressures and leads to decreased ulcer recurrence rates. Orthotics alone will not be successful because they would have been used after the initial trial of total contact casting. Moving on to the next question. A 60-year-old woman with a long-standing history of diabetes mellitus with documented peripheral neuropathy has a plantar ulcer. The ulcer has been present for three months. Her primary care physician has treated her with saline dressing changes with no success. The ulcer is located on the plantar surface of the foot under the third metatarsophalangeal joint. On probing the wound, the metatarsal head is visualized. What is the best diagnostic test to determine the presence of bony involvement? And the choices are one, CBC count, two, C-reactive protein, three, technetium bone scan, four, bone biopsy, and five, weight-bearing radiographs. The correct answer to this question is four, bone biopsy. So the presence or absence of osteomyelitis is difficult to discern. The clinical finding that has been found to be the most specific for bony involvement is the presence of an ulcer that probes directly to bone. Bone biopsy from the involved area is the most accurate method to determine the presence or absence of osteomyelitis. A bone biopsy with culture not only helps determine the presence of osteomyelitis, it helps in determining the causative pathogen in chronic osteomyelitis. The standard laboratory test, such as a complete blood count with differential, is not very helpful because of the immunocompromised condition and vascular insufficiency in many of these patients. C-reactive protein elevation and erythrocyte sedimentation rate can be helpful, but are not diagnostic for bone involvement. Standard radiographs can show erosive changes consistent with osteomyelitis, but in a neuropathic patient, this can be confused with Charcot neuroarthropathic changes moving on to the next question. A 66-year-old patient with type 1 diabetes mellitus has a deep non-healing ulcer under the first metatarsal head and a necrotic tip of the great toe. He has been under the direction of a wound care clinic for four months and has had orthotics and shoe wear changes. What objective findings are indicative of the patient's ability to heal the wound postoperatively? And the choices are one, absolute toe pressures of 55 millimeters of mercury, two, transcutaneous oxygen level of 20 millimeters of mercury, three, arterial brachial indices or ABI of 1.2 at the level of surgery, four, ABI of 0.3 at the level of surgery, and five, an albumin level of 2.5. The correct answer to this question is one, absolute toe pressures of 55 millimeters of mercury. So absolute toe pressures greater than 40 to 50 millimeters of mercury are a good sign of healing potential. An ABI of greater than 0.45 favors healing, but indices greater than one are falsely positive due to calcifications in the vessels. Normal albumin is an overall indication of nutritional status. A transcutaneous oxygen level should be greater than 40 millimeters of mercury for healing. Moving on to the next question, a 35-year-old woman with type 1 diabetes mellitus has been treated for the past two years at a wound care center for persistent bilateral fifth metatarsal head ulcers. Management has consisted of shoewear modifications, treatment with multiple enzymatic ointments, and a fifth metatarsal head resection on the left side. Physical examination reveals intact pulses, minimal ankle dorsiflexion, neutral hind foot, and a persistent ulcer under the fifth metatarsal heads. What treatment will best help heal the ulcers? And the choices are 1. Plastazote orthotics with a metatarsal pad and a cutout under the fifth metatarsal head. 2. Hyperbaric oxygen and prolonged non-weight bearing. 3. A healing shoe that completely alleviates any weight bearing on the forefoot. 4. A gastrocnemius release and supportive wound care. And 5. A transmetatarsal amputation. The correct answer to this question is for a gastrocnemius release and supportive wound care. So the patient likely has a significant Achilles contracture that causes her to always bear more weight on her forefoot. A gastrocnemius recession takes the ankle out of plantar flexion and she will be able to return to a normal gait and reduce the pressures on her forefoot. A forefoot amputation is a salvage option. The other choices are appropriate. However, the patient has had this problem for two years and she has already had multiple attempts at shoe wear modification. And moving on to the final question. A 57 year old man with type two diabetes mellitus was successfully treated for a first occurrence of four foot full thickness, or a Wagner II diabetic foot ulcer underlying the third metatarsal head with associated hammer toe with a series of weight bearing total contact casts. There was no evidence of osteomyelitis. The ulcer is now fully healed. He is insensate to the SEMS-Weinstein 5.07 or 10-gram monofilament. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are 1. No further treatment is advised until a second ulcer develops, 2. Oxford shoes with a rubber sole, 3. Deep inlay shoes with a custom accommodative foot orthosis, 4. Dorsiflexion 3rd metatarsal osteotomy, and 5. Achilles tendon lengthening. The correct answer to this question is 3, depth inlay shoes with a custom accommodative foot orthosis. So this is the first occurrence of diabetic foot-specific morbidity. The patient has a foot deformity, a history of a diabetic foot ulcer, and is insensate to the monofilament. He is at moderate risk for the development of a recurrent ulcer. This is best avoided with therapeutic footwear. Commercially available depth inlay shoes should be combined with a custom accommodative foot orthosis to accommodate the deformity.